if I haven't met you yet. And I'm really excited about, for the next five weeks, we're going to continue. Last week, Rob kicked off our introduction to the book of 1 Corinthians and walked through all the themes, really using um, this, this cool video from the Bible Project. And if you weren't here last week, you want to see that because it's just an eight-minute summary of this whole book that really lays it out. And um, that poster is in our lobby. And, but you can click on our website and, and watch that video. It'll be great. But today, we're, we're kicking off with the first... We're going to summarize the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. And so, I've never done this in my life. I hope this goes well. It's kind of a lot, but we're going to... Another thing we're doing is, as we go through, we're encouraging you to read through the, the book as we go. And we actually have divided this up into daily readings. And so, if you go to our website or Facebook, or if, you're, if you sign up for our email updates, we'll send you a weekly reading that shows you the section we're reading, and then a little bit of discussion about it, like one paragraph, two paragraphs, and then a couple reflection questions. And so that's going to be a great way for us to individually dive in deeper to this, the, the truth and application that God has for us as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians, and also for us to do that together. So I encourage you to do that as well. Um, I'm going to, this morning, touch on, I'm going to pull out a little bit of the first chapter and then skip to the third chapter and talking about this whole theme of unity, and I'm going to leave the rest for you guys to, to fill in the blanks as you read this week. But unity is a big challenge for human beings and for Christians. I don't know if you've noticed that, but relationships can be tough, and there are a lot of issues, a lot of flies that can get in the ointment of our relationships. I was once spoke at a church here in Kansas, a little country church, and several years before that, they had had a church split. The church had divided, and half the church went off and started another church. And the issue, think, well, what was the issue that caused this church split? Was it, did they disagree about the Trinity, or the Holy Spirit, or spiritual gifts, or what was this big issue? Well, it came down to a disagreement about they were going to get new carpet for their church, and half the people wanted one color, and half the people wanted another color. And believe it or not, there, that led to a church split. And you think, wow, that's really bad. And I actually, I could tell a lot of stories. And I actually cut out a, a couple stories that I was going to tell about divisions in churches. Because there are so many. But also because it's easy to make fun of other people and their, their issues. But when you think back to what was my last argument with my friend or my spouse over it was probably dumber than the color of a church carpet, right? It was the stuff that gets the, the wedges in our relationships. It's so easy for that to happen. And things that you know, really are a non-issue, they, they poke at deeper issues in our hearts. And it's tough to walk in, in harmony and unity. And as, as a church, we're, we're doing a, not only 1 Corinthians, but we have this Bible reading plan that a lot of us are going through as, as a church and reading different books of the Bible together and Usually have a, or we always have an Old Testament section, a New Testament section, and a poetic part of the Bible. And so we just finished the book of Genesis. And I was, the, one of the things that stood out to me so much in the book of Genesis was all the division going on in relationships from the very beginning. You see that as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, not only was their relationship with God greatly damaged, but their relationship with one another was also greatly damaged. And they begin blaming each other. And th there's, there's tension and animosity in their relationship. Their first children, one of them kills his brother. And then 
You see Jacob and Esau. You see Rachel and Leah. You see Joseph and his brothers. You see in within families, over and over again, you see these, the division that comes. In a fallen world, in a broken world that we live in, that is one of the biggest evidences of sin and brokenness, is our relationships are damaged. But not only that, it's one of the best things that when the gospel comes, when Jesus comes and brings new life into the world, one of the best evidences of that is relationships being restored. And not only our relationship with God, but our relationships with one another can be restored. I, I was a kid when the, the Berlin Wall came down, and I remember when East and West Germany were reunited, and there was such an incredible celebration among the German people at that time because of this decades-long division was, 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 was being overcome and they were being reunited. And that's really a picture of what happens in the gospel. And so we are going through this book. Rob laid it out last week in the, the Bible Project video. talks about that, that Corinthians, the church in Corinth, the church that this letter was written to, had a whole lot of problems. And the approach of Paul and Sosthenes, the authors of this letter, they're writing to the church, they're, they're addressing those problems, and they always follow this pattern. They define the problem, and then they respond with the gospel. And so this is, they say, this is the problem, but we're not just going to try to use our own intellect and know withal, wherewithal to figure it out, but we're going to look at what does the message of who Jesus is and what he's done with his life, death, and resurrection and the, his kingdom coming to the world, how does that play out in this situation? And so that's what we're going to do this morning. That's what Paul does. And as, that's, that's really the, the approach as we're, we're looking at 1 Corinthians and this issue of unity and division. So uh, let's start out. And actually, at the beginning of the book, he really starts with the gospel. Before he starts getting into the problems, and even the first four chapters, he's, he's really, these are very real, difficult, practical issues. But it's interesting. He doesn't start, it doesn't seem very practical at first. He's more painting this grand narrative of, hey, this is the gospel. This is who Jesus is. This is what the cross does. This is who you are. This is what you've been given. And as he lays that foundation, then from that place, they're able to approach the problems. And so we're going to look at verse 4, laying out the the gospel. And I'm going to read, as I said, a section here from chapter 1 and then move on to chapter 3. Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Everyone say enriched. Enriched. You are enriched in him. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, if you can imagine, the Corinthians were in a rough place. This church had a lot of chaos, a lot of problems. They were probably thinking, man, we're, I don't know if this thing is going to make it. We're in tough shape. And but Paul starts out saying, hey, remember, you have been enriched in him. You, the grace of God has been given to you in Christ Jesus. I want you to not look at these problems, but look at who Jesus is and the fact that 
he has given you abundantly everything you need to live a life that honors him and that experiences him. And that's important because a lot of the times when we're, our problems in life and our, our tension in relationships is because of a sense of lack. We feel like, oh, I'm, I'm scared, I'm holding on to my life or protecting my turf, and I have to fight and scratch and claw for this because really on the inside, I feel insecure. And so Paul, God addresses that and says, hey, you need to know, if you're a believer in Jesus, his grace has come to you. You've been given every blessing in God. You've been enriched in him. Because I kind of just, oh, okay. Step back. It changes things. Um, I like how it says in, in verse 9, it says, you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And we tend to read the Bible through individualistic eyes. But that is speaking not only, that really the, the Greek there is, is kind of ambiguous. It's both fellowship with Jesus and fellowship with one another. And God is saying, you've been called into this fellowship with one another. So no matter, no matter what relational tensions you're facing, no matter what challenges there are, God has given you the grace to live this out. In verse 10, I just want to say this too. Really, I, you're going to have to take my word for it, or better yet, you'll see this when you read through it. But the big, one of the big attitude issues underlying all of these things was pride. And really, I heard it said once that pride and insecurity are two sides of the same coin. That we're proud because we're insecure. We have to project ourselves as this way because really on the inside, we're insecure. And if you can think about that, that's really, that was the Corinthians issue. And, and they came by it naturally. They, this culture was very arrogant. In fact, I ran across some, some quotes. I just want to share those with you from the Corinthian culture. Um, and the, the Stoic philosophy was big around, around this time. And they were always talking, basically, in, in these mystery religions were very prevalent, which was the idea that certain people had certain secret access to knowledge. And you had to be part of this religion and go through the secret initiation rites and processes. And if you did that, then you were, you were elevated above all the other people. And so these ideas had mixed their way into the church where people would feel, well, you know, I had this revelation, and God's really active in my life, and, which was probably true. But they became proud out of that place instead of realizing, man, that's a gift from God. And like I said, they came by it naturally. There's Epictetus, Epictetus, man, they, they, weird, weird names. But he, he was a philosopher, he's a Stoic philosopher. He said, who, when he lays eyes upon me, does not feel that he has seen his king and master? Yeah, I just think, that's all, you could turn that into a rap, couldn't you? I mean, you just put that, put a beat to it, you know, that's, there he goes. He's like, yeah, that's, that was the attitude that was so prevalent then and, and so prevalent now. There was a response to this sort of attitude um, by Plutarch. He was not a Stoic, so he was kind of like annoyed at all the Stoics and their arrogance, and he said this about them. But some think the Stoics are jesting when they hear that in their sect, the wise man is not only prudent and just and brave, but also an orator, a poet, a general, a rich man, and a king. And then they count themselves worthy of all these titles. And if they fail to get them, are vexed, ticked off. Like it's, you know, it's funny. Plutarch was probably a pretty proud guy himself. But they, I know sometimes proud people annoy me. And then I realize, you know, probably I'm annoyed because I'm proud. And their pride is coming up against my pride. And we're like in this, this clash 
right here. And that's, we are just naturally proud and naturally insecure in our fallenness. And we have to, if we can acknowledge that and see that's the problem behind a lot of this, that will, that will take us far. So, um, but unity comes when we know, man, I don't have to be proud because I've been abundantly blessed in Christ. I've been enriched. And verse 10 continues on. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which was the name for Peter, or I follow Christ. So basically, the church was divided into these different camps. And someone said, oh yeah, Paul, he's my leader. Apollos was another gifted teacher and orator, really, a very gifted speaker who was one of, had been one of the leaders in helping lay the, lay the foundation of the church in Corinth. And there were other people who were like, oh, we, Apollos, he's the man. We really, like, we really like him. And others were like, no, Peter, Cephas, he's the man. And then there are people who are like, oh no, we follow Christ. And you're like, well, that sounds pretty good. But it was an attitude still behind that. It goes on in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? You know, it's, it's funny. I, I think it's, this message is very relevant today. It's probably more relevant than ever because not only do we have access to the, the teachers and the leaders in our local church, but with media and the internet, we have access to gifted teachers all over the world. And it's very easy to be like, oh, I follow Tim Keller. Or I follow Joel Osteen. Or name the name. Bob Goff. Whoever it is. I, we got these different, it's easy to be these different camps and be like, oh, well, they really got it figured out. Man, they, that sort of teaching, that sort of church, that's really what it should be. We should be more like that. And it's easy to, to fall into this, this, this place even more today than ever before. But, but Paul says, hey, why, why do we got to be like that? Um, don't, 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 don't be like that. Christ isn't divided. Um, verse 14 or uh, verse 13, did I read that? Yeah. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then in verse 17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now Paul's saying it's not a popularity contest. It's not about this person or that person, but it's about Christ. He's the one we follow. It's all about him. And really here he's pointing to the cross. He says it's not about who you're following or who baptized who, but it's about preaching Christ and the cross. And the cross, it's, it's one, you know, we, we, we're so familiar with the symbol of the cross that we can lose sight of its power. But Paul is going back to, hey, the cross is the source of of turning this around the way God wants it to be. And you think of the cross, it's, there's a saying that says, we're all equal at the foot of the cross. Really, the cross is the source of, of unity because we're all sinners before God. We all needed a Savior. And all of us who are born again and transformed 
by the grace of God. It's not by our own merits or our own accomplishments or what we do, but it's based on who He is and what He did. And so, the message is, hey, go back to the cross. It's, it's not us, me, how do I stack up against somebody else or how do I compare or compete with somebody else? But no, my righteousness, my standing comes from God and what He's done for me. And the rest of this chapter talks more about that in, in chapter 2. But I want to move ahead to, to chapter 3. It goes on and says, But I, brothers, cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. That's not a compliment, in case you're wondering. <laughs> you're a bunch of babies. Come on, you need to grow up. I, I couldn't talk to you with it as if you had any sort of maturity because you're just a bunch of stinking babies. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready. So maybe it was appropriate that you had milk at that time, but by now you should be ready to move on. But yeah, you're still in this place of immaturity. Come on, guys, what's wrong with you? For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So he's saying, you're a bunch of babies. You're not very mature. You're fleshly. And it's interesting that the things that probably they would have thought would have made them more mature, or that they thought they were mature because they had, would have been things like, oh, we have superior knowledge and wisdom. Again, that was the whole cultural value and very much prevalent in this community. Like, oh, we have a lot of wisdom and insight. That doesn't make you mature. They might have said, oh, we have a lot of spiritual gifts. We, this, this church was strong in spiritual gifts, we're going to see. But Paul's saying, hey, spiritual gifts do not make you mature. They're gifts. They're given. Toddlers get gifts at Christmas. It's a good thing. That doesn't mean you're mature. That's, that doesn't make you mature. You may take pride in your sexual morality, and we'll see that was a big issue in the church. There was a lot of immorality, and there were people that were upset about it, saying, hey, we need to deal with this moral issue. And actually, I, I don't want to forget to say this, next week, I'm going to be uh, bringing the same message to, to Morningstar Church in Lawrence, but Pastors John and Pam McDermott, the pastors there, are going to come here and talk about issues about sexuality and the body and how that plays out today and it affects whole, whole issues that are very relevant in our culture, like same-sex attraction and transgenderism and all of this body issues. You're in for a treat next week. So, but there will be people that would say, hey, I, we're moral, they're immoral, we're mature. That's not what the, the litmus test of maturity is that he's looking at right here. What is he saying is immature? Well, it's this last part. While there's jealousy and strife among you. While there's division among you. While you're not living relationally connected, that's immaturity right there. And that kind of changes things around a little bit, right? Because we can feel like, yeah, I'm pretty mature, but then how come my relationships are so messed up? It's all those other people, I'm sure. That's usually that way. It's also interesting, this is one of those side notes Rob was mentioning, I was reading the commentary, but this word jealous, it has the implications we think of, of being jealous of one another, but it also could be uh, interpreted zealous, zeal. 
And it's the same where it's used in the Bible like Paul said, hey, before I encountered Jesus, I was very religious. But in my zeal, I was trying to pull all the law and I was even persecuting the church. And he's saying, hey, a lot of the, the divisive attitude that's present, it has a whole religious undertone. And it has these, these issues that people were divided over. It wasn't just like the color of the carpet, but there were issues about, about spiritual gifts. They were theological issues. They were issues about wisdom. They were things that you really would think like these are important, and they are important. But there's a tendency among religious people, including Christians, to take what is important and take on a zealousness, a zeal that's not about God, but it's about us. And you can see this in, throughout history and throughout cultures and religions. It's, it's so easy to be zealous for God and truth, but it's really not about God and truth, but it's about me and my position. I, I mean, that's how I, most of my disagreements with my wife, you know, that's where I'm at. I'm like, man, this is truth. This is important. It's not about me. You know, this is about, this is an important principle. And, but no, somehow my soul and my ego are intertwined with that issue. And that's, that's how it works. That making sense? It's connecting with you guys. Um, anyone else see that? Yeah. Good. Well, let's move on here. Verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants to whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So we say, hey, these, these teachers that you're following and being and you're dividing over, they're servants of God. They're not the main point. They're, they're serving God, but God's the, the point. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And that word one, it's, it, if you saw it, it looks like synergy, the Greek word. It's the idea that we're co-working together. There's in synergy is the sum of the whole is greater than the individual parts. That we're actually we're working together. We're synergistic. Like we're in unity here. That's that's the goal. We're one. He who sows and he um, he plants and he waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And so, get these analogies in your mind. He's saying the church is it's not a building, it's not an organization, it's not a political organization. His analogy here is a field, and it's a building. And the different ministers in the church, it's, it's about helping that field to produce a good crop. It's about helping that building to be built. But remember, it's not their field or your field. Or my field, it's God's field. God's building. And this is really important. I go back to the, the high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed the night before he was crucified. His prayer was, God, would you make them one? He's praying for his disciples. Would you make them one, even as you and I, Father, are one, so that the world may know that you have sent me? How it's so important that our unity shows the world that God is real. Because we are God's God's building, what God is building in the world. And verse 10, he goes on, it says, According to the grace of God given to me, 
Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that he, anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So here, there's an analogy of this building, and it's being the foundation is Jesus Christ. And then upon that foundation, you can build with valuable things, gold, silver, precious stones, or less valuable things, wood, hay, straw, things that aren't going to last. And I've read this a hundred times. I've sat down with people and done Bible studies with this verse and said, you know what, this is a great, this, is a, this shows how it is important about how we build our lives. And are you going to build your life with gold, silver, and precious stones or with wood, hay, and straw? You know what? That's not what it's talking about here. This is actually, that's actually, the, some religions have taken this passage, and that's where the whole idea of purgatory comes from. Where it's like, hey, you're judged, and some of it's burned up. That's like purgatory, burning up the chaff, and you have to spend some time there, and then eventually you can go to heaven. But it's not talking about an individual here. What's the analogy? You are God's building. Who's the you? It's corporate. It's the church. It's not just an individual, but this building that God is building is so important. It matters so much that he's saying, hey, you gotta, if you're serving in the church, if you're part of a church, it matters what you add to it. It matters what you bring to it. It matters how you build, because this is God's building. And it's going to pass through a fire of judgment. It's going to be assessed at the end. It goes on in verse 16. It says, do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you? Again, we often read that like, oh, I'm God's temple. God's Spirit dwells in me. And that's true. And actually, later in this book, we'll talk about that next week, the Bible says our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. But here, the you is not singular, it's plural. It's saying, you are God's temple. God's Spirit dwells in you together. It's, there's a way in which God's presence is, is there in our relationships, in our life as a community that is not present in any other way. Do you not know that you, the church, are God's temple? God's Spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. You know, how does that change things when we think about this? Probably if you're going to get one thing, I'd love you to get this truth today, that we, the community of believers, is God's temple. What was the temple in the Old Testament? If you read through the Bible, there was, there was first a tabernacle, and then there was a temple, and that was a place that when those were given to the people, literally there, there was smoke and a cloud and fire came to signify that the presence of God was in his temple. And that was the place where, where heaven and earth were touching in that place. Where in this broken, fallen world, at the place where the tabernacle or the temple was, God's presence was there. 
And there was a merging of heaven and earth. And that was so valuable, so sacred. You had to treat that with awe and be very careful. And there were sacrifices and all, these, all this stuff to, for that to happen. But in the New Covenant, it's we, the church, is God's temple. And God is, ever since the fall, God has been on a mission. You read the story of the Bible from the beginning. He's bringing His presence into the world. He's, we're going to a place, and, and you go to Revelation, it says we won't need the sun anymore because heaven and earth will merge together fully. And God's presence will be there. It will be the light of this, of this world. But in the meantime, God's light and God's presence is coming to the world. And it's through His people. And that's That's awesome. When you think about it, like God's, God's plan, His purpose, what He's doing, He's bringing that about in the world. And it's through, yes, individuals, but much, much more so, it's through our relationships, through our community. They will know you're Christians by your love for one another. It's not just about how we get along, but it's about God's presence and God's purpose coming to the world. You are God's temple. Man, this is so just inspiring to me as I think about it. Um, that's what God is. This really matters. Like, the church matters. It's not just a thing. There, you, there's, no wonder there's so much warfare over the church being the church. Because it's through our relationships, through our community, being the community of God as a light in the world, that God's presence and power comes. Verse uh, 21. I love this. Wrapping up the chapter here. He says, So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Look over that again. For all things are yours. All things are yours. Remember, going back to that insecurity and that, oh man, I have to, I have to fight for my turf. I have to fight for my feeling like I have something, that I am somebody. Paul's going back to the gospel. Hey, in Christ, all things are yours. All is yours. Whether this teacher or that teacher, hey, it's all accessible to you. It's all for you. Whether the world or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours. Man, that's... We don't have to compete with anybody else. We don't have to pick the best. It's all available to us in Christ. And then it says, and you are, you are Christ. And Christ is God's. And that's even more important. That, hey, it's all ours, but it's all His. And we are his. And it's not my identity, it's not my loyalty to this person or that person. Our loyalty is to be to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what brings it all together. And, man, this is just so, in the real world, this, this matters. And it helps us get out of our, our, our petty arguments and our division. And, I mean, I feel like I love how, when I talk to people about, hey, how do you get connected to, how, to Bluemont? And what's your story? So often, the, the, what I hear from people is, man, there was just, there were relationships and there was a community that I experienced, and that's what brought me in. And I'm so thankful for that. 
I'm so thankful that God is at work in our community and there are real relationships and there's real community. And the very thing we're talking about, that God's presence comes to the world through the community, that's because that's how it works. That's how God designed it. And man, it's, there's a, that, it's so great. But we always have so much room to grow. You know, I love how one of the values of our church since we started is to be a multicultural, multi-ethnic church. And man, I'm so, we have seen that happen in a unique way. And people tell me, like, wow, how does that, how do you do that? And I don't know, it's the grace of God, but I know it's what he called us to. I believe it's a picture of, of what the church is supposed to be. But I also know there's some tension along the way. Like, that doesn't just happen. Different cultures come together. There are always reasons for offense, reasons for misunderstanding, reasons for feeling humiliated, all sorts of things. And I wish I could say that, you know, we've got the magic elixir and just come into our community and that's not going to happen anymore. But I'd be a really bad liar if I said that. Because every, every day of our lives, we walk through these relational issues. But there's something about when I realize, you know, yeah, I'm an American, and I'm of European descent, and I'm a male, but those are just sub-identities under the big identity of being a son of the living God and being a part of his church, his new community that brings people of all different stripes and colors and backgrounds together. I, you know, I think actually the, pers- the, the cultural deal, the ethnic deal, actually that's an easy thing for me compared to the personality deal. <laughs> like not only the church, one of the best things about the church is, or the craziest things about the church is God brings you together with people that you would never pick. <laughs> and you may be like, hey, I'm good, black, white, man, I'm, that's good. A lot of us women are going to do this Enneagram thing next week. I know a lot of us have been talking about that, which kind of breaks up people into nine different personality types. And certain types, you know, there are all sorts of personality profiles out there. But certain types, you tend to like people like you, and there are certain types that naturally fit together and get along pretty well. And then there are the other types. (laughs) And you rub each other wrong, and you don't like how they think and how they act and how they operate. And... You know what? A lot of the best influences in my life are the people I never would have picked. They were the personality profiles that I just think, that, are you sure that's a God-given personality profile? <laughs> I think you're just arrogant and brash, actually. Like, that, but God brought us together, and I get more from them than the people who are like me. And I've been more transformed. And that's the beauty of the church is people who are different than you, people who don't just naturally gel with you or think like you, but it's bringing us together. And that's the beautiful thing of God building his a community that reflects him. So, man, enjoy the ride with all sorts of different personalities. Um, we're going to keep getting into more practicalities over the next few weeks, but, but what's our takeaway for today? Well, takeaway is this, fight for unity. Unity is worth fighting for. And you've got to fight for it. it does, it's not just dropped into your lap. There, so much of my life and my, most, my energy, my emotional energy, is spent working out relational stuff. And it's usually not even that big, but it's just because I have a commitment. 
that I want to resolve things and not have lingering things with the people around me. And that energy, as I go to God and trust him, it's always energy well spent. And but you never get past, like, oh, I have to invest my energy in fighting for relationships, fighting for unity. Especially when our feelings are hurt, when someone offends us, when someone does something wrong, or when we're just in a bad mood. It's, are we going to fight for our relationships? Are we going to fight for unity? And, but again, that's, that's what it's worth it, because that's where heaven comes to earth. That's where this community is a community that God is building in the world. Um, as we fight for that, it, it matters how we go about it. And this is the gospel approach. And just kind of summing up what I said earlier, but there are three things to consider as we do that. Consider, first of all, that all things are yours. Man, I don't have to fight for unity from a place of, of lack. I can come from a place of abundance. Man, this is all mine. God's given us everything we need in Christ Jesus. We have an abundance mentality. It's, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that churches around the world that emphasize the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit, they are much more ethnically diverse than churches that don't, I would say. Or I'd say the most ethnically diverse churches in the world are those that emphasize the being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because there's something about just getting filled up with God and having more of His presence and Spirit in your life that just kind of works all that stuff out. And you find yourself drawn together with people in a, in a fullness of relationship. So consider all things are yours. Consider all things are all things Christ. Man, it's not mine. All things are Christ. It's His. And He is extending His, expanding, extending his kingdom into the whole world. And consider... The cross. What does the cross have to say about this? The cross turns everything upside down. It's not about status, power, accomplishments. It's the one with all the status and all the power humbled himself so we could have everything he wants for us. And then he calls us to do the same thing. To live with the way of the cross. By not seeking our turf or our status. But laying that aside and seeking what he has for us. So, consider all things yours, consider all things Christ, and consider the cross. I want to give you one more assignment for this week. To apply this, what's one practical way for you to fight for unity? What's one relationship, situation, where can you fight for unity this way, this week? And actually, I want to just pray and ask that God would speak to us right now and help us in that. Lord, thank you for making us to be a community. Well, thank you for making us to be your community. Thank you for the ways we've experienced your presence and your goodness and your transformation through the church, through the people of God. Lord, help us to be part of, of building that in the world in a way that shows the world who you are. God, even right now, would you speak to us how you want us to... where? 
I just encourage you to, to ask, your, ask God this question. Lord, where do you want me to apply this in my life right now? What's the attitude? What's the person? What's the situation where I can apply this? Lord, help us to do that. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Rob, you can come on up. I uh, want to reiterate our goal of transformation. It's always our goal. And as we go through this, we're looking at these real issues and looking at how are our lives and how is our community transformed in this. And we're going to have the week after, or kind of our culmination of this series, we're going to have a Testimony Sunday where we're going to be hearing from us, a bunch of us, I, I trust, with stories about, man, God spoke to me in this area of my life, and I trusted him, obeyed him, and this is how my life has been transformed as I've been doing that. And so we have on our website a little button on our homepage that says Testimony. I think that's what it says. Share a testimony. Just click on that, send it to us, and if we get some good ones, we may even throw them out before we get to the end, because, man, we, we, we want to just share these testimonies. We, as we said last week, if we don't have testimonies for Testimony Sunday, we'll have a day of mourning, actually. <laughs> like, we're not going to just, like, carry on. Like, no, this, this is the whole point. Like, we want to see how are we taking this and applying it and being transformed. So, I don't want to have a day of mourning. Let's, let's, let's have a great Testimony Sunday. I know we will. I'm excited about that. Um, yeah, go ahead, Rob. Well, thanks. Yeah, like Jonathan said, just uh, highly encourage you guys.